Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Margaret Conley, Executive Director of Asia Society Northern California and your moderator for today's program. This program is being held in association with Asia Society Northern California, the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, the McKinsey Global Institute, and Thai Silicon Valley. It is my pleasure to introduce today's distinguished speaker, Parag Parag Khanna, managing partner at FutureMap, former fellow at Brookings Institution and New America. He's the author of the new book, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Born in India, Dr. Khanna is the international best-selling author of six books. He has traveled to most countries in the world. He holds a doctorate from the London School of Economics and master's and bachelor's degrees from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He is a contributor to CNN, a, a, a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, and has also been an advisor to the U.S. National Intelligence Council. Dr. Khanna says there is no more important region of the world for us to better understand than Asia. He says it's a region that many misunderstand. Asia's complexity has led to common misdiagnoses, namely that Western thinking on Asia conflates the entire region with China, predicts imminent World War III, and forecasts debt-driven collapse for the region's major economies. Dr. Khanna says that in reality, the region is experiencing a confident new wave of growth led by younger societies from India to the Philippines. He asserts that in the 19th century, the world was Europeanized. In the 20th century, it was Americanized. And now in the 21st century, the world is being Asianized. Today, he will detail his view that as Asia determines its own future, it will determine ours as well. He'll speak for a few minutes, and then we're going to round out the hour with conversation. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Parag Khanna. Hi. Thank you. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that very generous introduction, Margaret, and to George for hosting me and all of the the sponsor organizations. I like to think that everything I say should be so obvious uh, to you, this being California, the most Asian state uh, in the union. But that said, let me take you across the Pacific uh, and make a few points just to kick off the conversation. I'm really looking forward to uh, all of your questions and comments. Um, Let me start by making a demographic point. I think we all know that China and India are the two most populous countries in the world. But when you think about the broader Asian geography, which actually stretches beyond just uh, this immediate China, India, Southeast Asia space to include also uh, what we traditionally call the Middle East, meaning West Asia, we're actually talking about four and a half billion people, nearly five billion people, which is, of course, the majority of the world population. What's interesting, though, is that that's always going to be true. There was a time when we thought the world population would rise towards 15 billion people or something like that, but it's not. Our latest forecast put the world population plateauing at under 10 billion, which means that really we're going to live in a demographically Asian world for the lifetimes of everyone in this room, our children, our grandchildren, and so forth. So that is obviously quite significant. The other is that you know, it's not just demographics alone or size alone that connotes power or influence uh, or centrality in the world. It's, of course, the degree of connectivity, of urbanization, of economic growth, productivity, all of those things that really make regions of the world important. And Asia is not only uh, well into that process, but still has a long way to go to fully uh, to, to meet, to fulfill its potential. And this is where we get to the point that Margaret mentioned about how really we conflate China with Asia or Asia with China far too much because there was history before China. There was life before uh, China became the world's largest economy. And there will actually be uh, Asian civilization beyond that point as well. So let me explain what I mean by that because we do tend to be very ahistorical. We look at China as the center of the Asian story, and it is, but Let me talk about the antecedents. How did China even get to be China? Because the collective Asian economic miracle after World War II begins, of course, with Japan. 
and Japan's spectacular rise within just a couple of decades to become uh, the world's second largest economy. Uh, and its industrialization and modernization in the 50s and 60s um, really inspired the second wave of modern Asian growth, which were, of course, the tiger economies, right? South Korea, Taiwan, uh, um, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And their GDP also grew within a couple of decades to reach the same as that of uh, Japan. And then, starting 40 years ago, came the China story, right? So when you ask, how did China become China? It's not, wasn't some kind of virgin birth, right? Sort of Deng Xiaoping came along and decided he's going to open the economy, and they just started to manufacture everything themselves. We know that that's not true, obviously. In fact, the reason China became what it is today is precisely because not only was it inspired by the Pro, the, the now very prosperous and industrial and modern Asian countries that paved the way for it, but they were also its largest investors and continue to be its largest investors to this day. And so we know that China has, uh, has become uh, you know, a, an economy on par uh, with the United States in size, but we also know that China's economy is decelerating now. Its population is peaking, right? And in foreign investment is moving out of China into other regions. Care to guess where it's going? It's going to the next wave of Asian growth countries, right? Again, their story of just the last 60, 70 years of Asia's economic rise does not begin with China. It does not end with China. China is only the third phase in the process or the wave. And the fourth wave is South and Southeast Asia, which uh, the population is, is actually 2.5 billion people stretching from Pakistan through India, through the Southeast Asian uh, countries. And of course, their populations are younger. Uh, they have lower median ages, uh, and they are now attracting more foreign investment than China itself. India last year attracted more FDI than China. ASEAN has been attracting more FDI than China for five years. And what's happening with the trade war will only accelerate that trend. So we are actually well into this next wave of Asian growth. And if these economies, albeit not one singular state, of course, it's a dozen countries. However, if they grow at only 5%, which is lower than the growth rate of India right now, uh, they will equal China's present GDP size in less than a decade, right? So we have been largely ignoring uh, these countries for far too long, even though already today they represent an enormous uh, uh, high potential economic force. And Asians have already recognized this opportunity. Again, China got to be China because its predecessors invested in it. These countries are achieving their potential or, or starting to because Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and China itself are the largest investors in them. And so when we think about the Asian economic system, we shouldn't think of it as this kind of zero-sum uh, dynamic, the way we are look at the world today, especially in the context of the trade war. Instead, we should appreciate these mutually reinforcing waves of growth. So <clears throat> just to put China in context, right? It is only a third of Asia's population, it's only half its GDP, and it represents um, only half of the uh, investment flows in and out of the region. A lot of people would say we've reached peak China, in fact, but that by no means uh, uh, indicates that we reach peak Asia, to the contrary. Now let me show you, uh, or you know, discuss a bit further in, uh, in purchasing power parity terms, how we would measure uh, the, the, the economies of Asia, because here it also reinforces the point that the region is quite multipolar, not purely unipolar uh, economically. When you measure economies in PPP terms, in other words, the currency in which they actually spend and consume uh, goods and services in their own countries, uh, because these are such really domestically uh, focused economies, or more and more as they grow, you find that China's GDP becomes larger than America's already. India's is significantly revised upward. The ASEAN GDP collectively is larger than India's, but with less than half the population of India. So clearly Asia is quite multipolar. Now you see I've also, I also include or, or code, if you will, West Asian countries into Asia. Now if you look at Russia, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, these are countries that... If you go back you know, 20, 30 years, 
the decade after the uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, they all sought to remain very well branded uh, as Western or Western leaning. You know, Western alliance system, Western military relationships, Western ec- uh, trade with Western economies. Uh, Turkey wanting to join the European Union. Uh, the attempts to woo or or integrate Russia into the West. Then came the decade after that where things got a bit frosty, right? Relations with Turkey certainly cooled under Erdogan. Uh, Obviously, the democratization process stalled there and most definitely in Russia. And uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, began to, with its energy markets, focus much more on Asia than on the West. And certainly there's been no democratization uh, in, in, in either of those three. In the current decade, the third phase of these countries, again, very significant swing states, right? Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. These are three very important countries in the world, and they are all in the western frontier of Asia. We've thought of them as Western or Western-leaning. Of course, they're not Western uh, themselves. Um, But now what you see in the present period, right now as we speak, they are heavily tilting towards uh, to their east to East Asia. Uh, Russia used to depend primarily on its trade with Europe and investment from Europe. Now its largest trading partner is China. It has very rapidly uh, fast-growing trading relationships with other Asian countries uh, as well. Now, you can look at the the ways in which Asian uh, countries are are kind of resurrecting the Silk Roads. Um, If you take any pair of countries in geographic Asia and go back 15 years, 10 years, five years, and this is the present data, what you'll see is that the trade volumes between them has increased. And I include, again, the West Asian countries um, of the Gulf region and sub-regional or regional groups like Southeast Asia. So pick any pair of countries, whether it's Russia with India or the Gulf countries with China or Japan with India or Australia with the Gulf, you pick, right? Those numbers are going up. In other words, the new, this, this sort of the Silk Roads are back, right? Uh, and, and you can already measure this in trade. And the volume of trade here, the, the volume of trade or the proportion of trade that Asians have with each other now far exceeds their trade with the rest of the world, right? They trade more with each other than they do with us and certainly more than they do with, uh, well, more than they do with Europe as well. So I, I make the case in the book that you know Asia is in some ways again depends on the the, the aspect of trade that you measure decoupling you know in a way from uh, from the rest of the world now they still depend on global capital markets and they benefit from from global liquidity coming into their uh, into their financial systems and so forth so it's not that they want to decouple in trade. It's just that they increasingly can. If you look at the economies and the the countries here, you've got your oil-rich countries, you have your industrial centers, your financial centers, food producers. Any way you measure it, Asians can can buy and sell more and more with each other. Uh, Diplomacy. You're starting to see Asians coming together there as well. Traditionally, in global governance conversations, we largely focus on to what extent are rising powers influencing existing multilateral structures. What's their voting share in the IMF or the World Bank or something like that? But what we've been ignoring is to what extent Asians have the capability to just build their own institutions, right, to conduct their own diplomacy. And indeed, this is part of what happens when you take a, uh, an inside-out view of Asia rather than an outside-in view. What occupies the Asian mind and Asian leaders, uh, priorities number one through ten, is largely what are we doing with our neighbors? What can we do to govern ourselves? How can we have stability in our own region? Not number eleven might be, uh oh, what was Donald Trump's latest tweet, and does it have you know negative implications for us? But it's not really what occupies uh, their, their time, and you can see that here. So let me give you a few examples. We've had the. Um, the rise of sub-regional groupings like ASEAN I mentioned earlier. There's also the ASEAN Plus 3 uh, trade system. There's the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is meant to go into effect this year. And note how many Asian countries joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even though we did not, even though we created it. It's a separate point to get back to in, in a minute. Um, but there was no way that they were not going to also do their own internal trade liberalization, even if we had given them the opportunity to have more liberalized trade with us 
through the TPP. It's always both and. They want to increase or intensify their own uh, relations. And if you look over here on the left, that's the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was created only a couple of years ago, and yet it's probably, by membership, one of the fastest growing multilateral organizations in history. And this is, although a very small organization in terms of its uh, capital pool at the moment, um, it really embodies the spirit of that Belt and Road Initiative and the new Silk Roads because it provides the, uh, some of the co-financing infrastructure finance necessary. Now, you'll see here not only that there are um, actually about 80 members, I, I can't update the list uh, fast enough of, of members, but you'll notice that um, you know, Iceland has joined, I mean, what is Iceland doing joining the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? Chile as well. You know, the Pacific Ocean is the planet Earth's greatest natural barrier to human contact. Uh, and yet, you know, Chile is, is on board. So the whole world is saying, wait a minute. Asia's investing in infrastructure. Asia's recreating the new Silk Roads. How can we get in on that story? How can we sell into that market? And that's what smart uh, countries are doing. That's certainly what Europeans are doing. And uh, what I wanted to explain here is the fact that um, you know, if you look at the tensions in the transatlantic relationship, uh, many of which actually predate the Trump administration, they've certainly been exacerbated. Uh, you know, Germany doesn't like being told that it needs to rein in its surpluses and that its automobiles are suddenly a national security threat, right? Uh, so Trump hasn't helped. But the transatlantic divorce, if you will, is something that I've been writing about for about 15 years, I would say, and it's only becoming more and more uh, pronounced. Now, what you can see here is just you know, the, the, the most important regions of the world economy in terms of their relevance or share of global trade, Europe is in the lead mostly because of its, uh, you know, volume of internal trade across those, those borders and because they're wealthy economies. Um, Asia is the second most trade-dependent region of the world, 34%, and North America, 14%. So here we are in what is actually the most autarkic uh, region of the world, the most self-sufficient. This is a very good thing, Right. North America has all of the natural resources, all the industry, all the, the, the people, the food, uh, and so forth, the money uh, to survive, right? To, to care for, to, to, to uh, take care of itself, more so than any other region can. But it also means that we have a lot less leverage on what others do than we think we do. And this is where the trade war obviously comes in and the terrible miscalculations that the administration has made. Because they've taken the view that they can almost dictate how others are going to trade with each other or what the global rules are. And we can't, not by the numbers, right? By the size of our economy, you would think so. But the size of your economy doesn't necessarily translate into your influence in trade if you are as domestically uh, services-driven uh, um, and self-sufficient as we are uh, as, as a country. So what's been happening in the last 15-plus uh, years is that Europe has begun to trade more with Asia. And again, they share a landmass, right? They share the continent of Eurasia. Europe is fully on board with building these new Silk Roads because they benefit from it. They trade $1.6 trillion a year with Asia already and only $1.1 trillion with North America. And normally, when you have more than a trillion dollars of trade between two regions of the world, you would expect that they already have free trade agreements, that they have seamless infrastructure, that they share you know, regulations. But that's not even true, right? You, uh, Europe, obviously, you know, China is not a market economy. Uh, all of the Belt and Road, sort of Silk Road infrastructure hasn't even really been built yet. And in terms of free trade agreements, uh, they're still in the earliest phase of doing free trade agreements with Japan, with Southeast Asia, and with India. So just imagine what the Euro-Asian trade volume could be in 10 years' time after you have better infrastructure, some more convergence or agreement on certain standards and regulations, and, of course, free trade agreements with these other fast-growing uh, Asian regions. It could be $2.5 trillion, right? So I say the future is Asian, but the future is very much Eurasian uh, at, at the same time. And again, let me just make one more point ab about this. Um, it's goes back to the trade war. Um, you know, if you are, uh, a, if you're sitting in Beijing right now and you see that the U.S. has imposed export controls on certain critical technologies or components, semiconductors and so forth, that you were comfortably getting from American suppliers, um, you must be saying to yourself, well, 
in my next procurement cycle, I'm going to make sure not to buy American, right? Because it's volatile. It's, it's uh, now dependent on whatever the whims or, or, or uh, you know, sentiments are on Capitol Hill or in the White House. Now, bear in mind, the U.S. is fully justified in calling China a cheat, right, on trade and forced technology transfer and all these kinds of things. Zero out of 100 American CEOs that you could survey or sample would disagree that China cheats. But I can't find anyone who would conduct the trade war in this way because we only have only calculated our action and assumed a reaction, assumed that they will comply. We haven't thought about the reaction to our action, right, which is the reciprocal tariffs and what happens down the road. Now, if you think about semiconductors and, av- and aircraft and soybeans, right, so I mean agriculture, uh, airplanes, so soybeans, airplanes, and semiconductors, right? let's just take three things, uh, that we sell a lot of to them, right? Well, they can get the soybeans from Argentina and Brazil, and it'll probably just encourage other countries to plant more soybeans, right? Um, oil and energy, oil and gas, obviously we had been selling them a lot, then it went down, the, the government in China is saying we're going we're gonna, to uh, take more U.S. energy imports, but that's a global market anyway, totally fungible. Um, and then there is uh, semiconductors, where, of course, you know, the U.S. has pole position in wafer foundries, but in terms of buying semiconductors, Chinese companies can get them from Japan, from South Korea, from Taiwan, and those countries, territories, are very, very eager to displace us, right? If, um, if again, if you're ZTE, having been brought to its knees suddenly by what the Trump administration did, you're not going to be, you know, going back to Intel or Qualcomm begging for chips. You're going to say, well, I'll just get them from TSMC in Taiwan or something like that. So what's underway is what I call permanent substitution, right? How can you permanently substitute your dependence on a volatile uh, supplier through more proximate and more reliable trading partners? So while we've been focused on only what the White House says, uh, and assuming it's going to work or, or not, we haven't been looking at what they're doing. And what they're doing is integrating further, more and more deeply. And uh, you know, the governments of, of China, Japan, and South Korea got together in October, and they said, uh, you know, we already trade you know, $4 or $5 trillion a year with each other. Let's take that up a notch, right? Because for the Chinese, it's great. It means they can substitute for uh, insec- unsecure uh, uh, American uh, components. And for Japan and South Korea, it means this is great. Let's undercut our American competitors, right? And that's what's been going on. The Europeans are thinking the same thing. Let's look at airplanes, right? The final uh, item I mentioned earlier, Boeing, Airbus, right? Two biggest aircraft manufacturers in the world. For 20, 25 years, uh, Chinese uh, um, the aviation industry has been buying Roughly half its planes from Airbus, half its planes from Boeing. Keep America happy, keep Europe happy. Now you've got 15 Chinese airlines, right? And every year or two, one or more of them, again, has a procurement cycle. They're going to buy more airplanes. If they are, if we still don't have, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of firm accord with China, if we don't have positive relations with China, if our trade with China decreases, what incentive do they have? to continue to divide those, that order sort of fairly or equitably, right? And so don't think for a minute, this is not reported in the Wall Street Journal because we're always focused on what we are doing, what we are saying. Don't, don't you think if you were European right now, you would be packing your planes with CEOs going to China and other Asian countries to say, oh, bad relations between the US and China, let's grab that market share that America is losing, Right? And it's not a hypothetical. That's exactly what has been happening every single day for a year. Right? So it's the airline executives, it's the, it's the technology companies, you name it, they're there. And that's why the uh, EU-Japan free trade agreement has been fast-tracked and so on and so forth. So I fully expect uh, our kind of own goals right now to have very, very significant long-term consequences, mostly negative uh, for us. Belt and Road, final point. Um, this is actually a, a map from, from a connectography uh, that I'm just showing you again here about kind of all of the infrastructures that are going to be uh, built in the next uh, five, ten years, whether it's the oil and gas pipelines, uh, um, uh, rail, railroads, high-speed rail, uh, fiber optic internet cables, electricity grids, you name it, really linking together uh, all of the countries of, of Asia. And bear in mind that you know, this is most of the world's population 
lives just in this region. Um, and uh, Europe is just off to the west, and they really want to be part of this, uh, this story. Now, we tend to think of this as a Chinese kind of hegemonic plot, right? China is seeking to use debt trap diplomacy, um, you know, off, offload its uh, overcapacity in steel and all sorts of other things to pave its way across Asia. And yes, that's, that is true. That's exactly what they want to do. They want to avoid being overly dependent on the, uh, on the Strait of Malacca in terms of the majority of their, uh, of their oil and gas imports coming through here and their finished goods exports going through here. If you were China, again, you would want to build these overland transportation corridors to diminish that dependence. In, in, in geopolitics, that's called the Malacca Trap. It's a 19th century problem, right, if not, if not even uh, older. So uh, naturally, when the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago, China said this is our chance to overcome the Malacca Trap. And I've been traveling in every country you see on this map for about 20-plus years, uh, from Kazakhstan to Afghanistan and, and Iran and so forth, and witnessing these Chinese uh, infrastructure projects. They only now have a name, the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, for, for the last two years, but I've been watching it for 20 years, right? And it's going to go on for another 20 years. And yes, there is a backlash, right? And in our media, we emphasize the backlash to the norm. The norm is lots of infrastructure is going to get built. China is going to finance a lot of it, but other countries will get involved as well. And they're going to reconnect to each other. They're going to trade more with each other. We act as if every time a country rejects a Chinese deal, that's the end of Belt and Road. It's not. This is the train that's left the station, right? All of these infrastructures are going to get built. Now, there is backlash, and I think the backlash is very good, right? And I document in this book and even in previous books uh, the anti-Chinese backlash country by country by country. I actually I think I'm the one who came up with the acronym ABC, Anyone But China, um, I've been hearing this for 20 years in Kazakhstan and Myanmar and Mongolia. Everywhere I go, countries know when they are uh, overly dependent on Chinese, uh, China for their foreign investment or on their exports going to China. Our diplomats go to these countries and warn them about something that they've been well aware of for like 20 years, and we consider that some kind of diplomatic coup. Um, it's really kind of ridiculous. What we need to be doing is actually to be competing right, in those markets. So you should join the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement if you want to, uh, you know, undercut uh, or compete with China in those markets. You should have more infrastructure finance if you want to compete with Belt and Road. If you want countries to not have to pay 5% interest rate to China but have a more concessional rate, you need to offer that. And country after country, we just sort of tell them what we think they don't already know their problem is um, instead of actually going and helping them solve their problem. And this is one of the big failures in our diplomacy, I would say. So I think that ultimately Belt and Road, and this is one of the central arguments in the book, we think of it right now as being this kind of one-way trip to Chinese dominance. What actually will happen in the medium term is that the more these economies grow, because they are growing very fast, the more they'll get sovereign, uh, you know, uh, sovereign credit ratings and more investors will come in, they will be able to dilute China's influence in their economies, and that will restore Asia to its historical pattern of being multipolar, right? 4,000, 5,000 years of history, almost never has Asia been dominated by any one civilization, right? The Mongols came pretty close. Uh, that was seven or 800 years ago, so not necessarily the most relevant model for today. Um, the Japanese tried, certainly in East Asia. That didn't work out so well. Um, so, you know, Asia is a much more diverse landscape than Europe, right? And we are, our theoretical models of international relations and geopolitics tend to be based on the European experience, which is not relevant. If you want to predict the future of Asia, look at Asia's past, right? Asia's past is very diverse, very multipolar, very heterogeneous, very actually impossible, quite frankly, for any one power to be able to overwhelm the others and subdue them and make the others like them. These are, this is a landscape of many mutually unintelligible civilizations with, in some cases, more than a billion people, right? So the notion that Asia is whatever China wants falls on its face. And you can see it every day in this backlash. You can see that even a poor country like Myanmar can give China a massive haircut on its debt. Malaysia can rip up contracts with China. Kazakhstan and other countries can say, you know what, we don't want China to own more than uh, you know, 49% 
of critical industries. Pakistan, which is totally dependent on China in so many ways, can say this whole China-Pakistan economic corridor, $60 billion, enormous debt to us, let's just cut that down to $30 billion and make sure the debt is sustainable. If this were a colonial world, the natives don't get to say no. Right? It's a very different century. So I'm very resentful, quite frankly, when I read The Economist or other publications that say, well, the Chinese are the new colonialists. The Belt and Road Initiative is just like the British East India Company. It displays a staggering lack of historical knowledge and imagination, quite frankly, and, and uh, lack of respect for all of these rich historical civilizations like India, Persian civilization and others that say no to China all the time. And I'll end with this point because it's so funny that we um, come back to to politics later. Um, You know, we look at Asia and like I said, we see China getting whatever it wants. We think they have a thousand year plan and that everyone bends and falls before them. And Asia is just a set of falling dominoes before China. Let me just tell you, if I were a leader in Beijing, I would actually be pulling my my hair out. I'd be saying, I never get what I want. (laughs) The Burmese are ripping up deals. The Kazakhs are ripping up deals. The Malaysians are ripping up deals. Poo poo, right? I'd be super upset. The reality is obviously somewhere in between, right? There is a a push and a pull uh, going on in Asia. And the more, again, you, you travel around the region and appreciate it from the inside out, the more you realize that Again, it is a, a, a vast, obviously, geography all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Sea of Japan, from uh, Russia to Australia. No one power is going to control it. And the more China-centric we are, the less we get it, the less time we spend realizing that if you want Asia to be diverse, to remain multipolar, to not be dominated by China or anyone else for that matter, the more you would understand those other stories and support other countries in what their ambitions are. And that would lead to a fairly different kind of foreign policy than what we have uh, right now. So with that, let me uh, pause and uh, thank you so much for uh, having me here. And I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Our thanks to Dr. Prakana, managing partner at FutureMap, f- former fellow at Brookings Institution in New America, and author of the new book, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. So we'll talk a little bit about your remarks. We have some questions already from the audience. If you have any more, please uh, send them up. Uh, let's start, because you spent a little bit of time on this in your book, um, about not looking at Western precedents um, in European history as we map out uh, Asia's future. How, how is Asia different? Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, in the, in the four or 5,000 years of kind of recorded civilizational history that we have of Asia, you have your, um, you know, the, the uh, Arabian, Turkic history and Persian history of West Asia. You have obviously South Asian civilizations, Central Asian nomadic uh, tribes, uh, Turkic, uh, Russian, everything in between. Um, obviously, Chinese empires and civilizations, Japanese, Korean. So they have all had patterns of, uh, you know, commerce, conflict, and culture. These are the three C's that I use in the book. And for every era of history, I look at what were the commercial patterns, the cultural patterns, the conflictual patterns. But again, only in one instance, the Mongols, right, a nomadic empire, uh, was there really a genuine pan-Asian sort of dominance or hegemony. And it was also, again, not particularly long-lived, not going to be recreated. Um, So the the natural multipolarity of Asia stands in contrast to our kind of uh, Eurocentric theory in which we tend to look at uh, the possibility of a unipolar hegemony, right? You know, if France, if Napoleonic France can conquer Europe, it can force everyone to speak French and be Catholic, right? If uh, Germany conquers Europe, everyone's going to be speaking German, right? And uh, that doesn't work in Asia, right? Uh, you know, again, there are three and a half billion Asians, billion with a B, who are not Chinese. We don't speak Chinese. 
aren't really going to learn Chinese, <laughs> aren't going to bow down to Xi Jinping, are doing quite the opposite right now. So Asia's natural state is multipolar. It would take an enormous amount of power, effort. It's quite literally inconceivable that, that even China, even with all of its incredible power, resources, wealth, might, sophistication, cleverness, all of those things, that it's simply going to dominate Asia. You know, and uh, again, we're starting to see many ways in which uh, Asian countries are militarily uh, drawing a line or trying to challenge uh, China. We had the Doklam Plateau standoff between India and China a year and a half ago. And, but if you were just looking, if you were just a military bean counter, you know, you'd say, my goodness, you know, this, is, this is not going to end well for India. But instead, India held its ground and China backed down, right? Very, very surprising. And this is going to be a case study that military uh, analysts around the world are going to be looking at for years and years to come because it almost proves that if you do stand firm with China, they will back down rather than the reverse, even as powerful as they are. Why? It's not because they can't win one particular localized battle, because they can. It's because they have 14 other, they have 14 neighbors. And so if you pick a fight and win and beat up one of those neighbors, what's going to happen to your relations with the other 13? You think the door is still going to be open for you to do those infrastructure contracts? You think they're still going to let you do your Silk Road projects? So they don't, they don't think in these just, you know, sort of dyadic kind of terms. And I witnessed this funny enough. I'm just reminding, reminded of uh, when I, I did... I, I, I served as an advisor to special operations forces. I spent uh, a chunk of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we used to talk about Iraq and Afghanistan as these two vastly different theaters of conflict, you know, and experiences, you know, the bad war over here in Iraq and the good war over here in Afghanistan. There's only one country between Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Uh, it's also one that sort of dare not say its name, uh, Iran. Just shows how, how sort of how poor the poverty of our geographic uh, knowledge, right? right? But, but China doesn't have that luxury, right? They have to think about the full sweep of their geography all the time because they have these 14 neighbors. So they have to think in very complex terms. And when you think in complex terms, you definitely don't think, well, I'm just going to beat up this country here and beat up this country here and beat up this country there because that is going to unleash a very serious can of worms that they're not going to be able to control. Well, let's get more into that then, China's Belt and Road Initiative. You've said it's the equivalent of the mid-20th century founding of the United Nations, the World Bank, and the Marshall Plan all rolled into one. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And we had a question from the audience about uh, specific progress that you've seen in that area. Sure. So again, before Belt and Road had a name, which is only a couple of years ago, it existed, right? It, we, and, and this phrase, new silk roads, that gets used a lot. Well, the reason we have the phrase new silk roads is because there obviously were previous eras of the Silk Roads uh, 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, right? And so, as I say, the day the Soviet Union collapsed, 1991, almost 30 years ago, is the day that your Asians that began to recreate these Silk Roads. Now the money is there, right? Uh, you know, the, the volume of capital massively dwarfs anything that the Marshall Plan, you know, sort of represented in current um, expenditure. And it's now being multilateralized. It started out as mostly Chinese money, and it still is. But there's, everyone is getting involved. In fact, the phrase I use is infrastructure arms race. China has unleashed a major infrastructure arms race. It said, we are going to put a trillion dollars of money into, into uh, connectivity across Asia. And then suddenly, in just the last two years, Europe said, we're going to have our own Asia connectivity initiative. Japan and India said, we're going to do connectivity corridors. The U.S., we have launched this thing called the United States International Finance and Development Corporation, USIFDC, that's also meant to compete with China. And in fact, uh, the electricity grid of Papua New Guinea was just a contract for that was just won by a consortium of the US, Australia, and New Zealand over a Chinese uh, a bidder, right? So everyone wants to compete to build and finance this infrastructure. So everyone wants to build the new Silk Roads. And it benefits China to some degree, but it benefits everyone else too. And it's, again, it's been going on for 30 years. So in terms of progress, in, enormous progress. Again, look at the numbers of uh, the trade volumes that have increased between uh, any two pairs of Asian countries. That is the result 
of all of this infrastructure that's being developed and the, the, obviously the opening of these economies uh, over the last uh, 30 years. There's been a number of, uh, you know, I would say fairly objective studies on this that have been done. The RAND Corporation has done one. Citigroup has done one. And again, these are American entities. They all conclude that Belt and Road not only has delivered tremendous benefits in terms of uh, trade and export you know, uh, uh, benefits for, um, for countries involved, but it's no longer just China-centric. And the, I think the operative phrase to remember is that what started out as a one-to-many project China wants to connect to whoever is most convenient for China to connect to to achieve Chinese goals of accelerating export outflow and commodities imports, right? But it's graduated from that one-to-many model towards many-to-many, right? Everyone's saying, I want to connect to my neighbors, and one, it could be China, or maybe it's not China, but connectivity serves me, and that's what's starting to happen. So it's really already moved towards many-to-many. Any thoughts on what's happening in the room right now with the U.S.-China trade talks? Um, you know, it's, I would say there's the short term, you know, medium term and long term, right? In the short term, sure, you might have some face saving agreement next week. I mean, that's obviously why uh, they've sent their top trade negotiator to personally meet with Trump to say, look, you know, this is a really strong offer that we have. We're going to, you know, um, massively increase imports uh, from the United States. Bear in mind that China just a few months ago held a big import fair, Right to talk about how it was, you know, promised to open its economy further to foreign goods. It wasn't an event to which there was a big U.S. delegation, but the rest of the world was certainly there in in full force. So, you know, for them, you know, can they ab- absorb, uh, you know, the, you know, sort of raising their uh, their their sort of uh, at least the deficit part of their trade balance? I mean, yeah, they they probably can as a gesture of goodwill. Sure, you know, buy more stuff uh, from the United States. It'll probably help them gain. Uh, more traction for their, um, and this is the medium-term part, their capital account liberalization, which is supposed to happen in the next few months, uh, moving back to that agenda of allowing more foreign investment in their debt markets, equity markets, bond markets. And that's, that's trillions of dollars on the line, right? Trade is, trade is merely billions, right? Finance is trillions. What China is thinking about, which we don't talk about in, in the news on a day-to-day level, is the fact that they want to see trillions of dollars of capital come into their stock exchange um, and to provide some liquidity uh, for their companies, state-owned enterprises, private capital, uh, private enterprise, and so forth. And so that's a big, big deal to them, medium term. Long term, though, there's just no question in my mind, no matter what happens, no matter how friendly or unfriendly, it's all going to lead to the same thing in the long term, which is what I call permanent substitution, Right. The goal is to decrease your dependence on the U.S. as much as possible because you don't know, as much as you love the technology, love American stuff, not sure about who's going to run the place, right? Um, That's actually what they're thinking, right? And uh, it's not, again, we are right to call them out on unfair trade. Everyone agrees with us. It's how you go about responding to it that is the part where everyone disagrees more or less with us. Look at Canada, look at Mexico, you know, uh, they joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. They have, by the way, proportionately the same deficits to China that we do. Smaller volume of trade, but equally mismatched uh, with with deficits. Um, But Canada and Mexico didn't say, well, you know, let's pull out of TPP and, um, you know, uh, let's let's impose tariffs on China. They said, we've got to diversify, we've got to compete more, we've got to penetrate those markets further in Asia and so forth and use that potentially as leverage with China. Canada would even like to have a free trade agreement with, uh, with, with China. Um, so I think that you know, we should be responding with that competitive spirit uh, rather than by freezing ourselves out of the growth markets. And that is exactly what corporate America is telling Trump right now, make no mistake. You talked about this a little bit. Can you go into more detail about what the other Asian countries are thinking specifically um, right now with these trade talks? Yes. And so, you know, I gave the example of, uh, of Japan and South Korea and Taiwan. Certainly they're going to be, you know, or are selling more into China as a result. But you're seeing 
um, you know, not just on the margins, but some some decent shifts. I mean, you know, India is exporting now more uh, to China. As I mentioned, the foreign investment is coming out of China into Southeast Asia based. And again, it predates the trade war. It's simply because their wages are lower, their economies are integrating. But now you're going to have that regional comprehensive economic partnership that I mentioned earlier, RCEP, go into effect with China and India and Southeast Asia. So all of those countries are going to have more access to the Chinese market. Again, we're not part of that conversation at all. And that obviously benefits Asians uh, uh, tremendously. You run a scenario firm. So what could go wrong, either with Belt and Road Initiative or with Asia taking the lead? Um, if you can give a couple examples of sure. studies that you've done and how, how they yeah. could play out. I think, you know, there's this sort of, you know, I get, I get this a lot, obviously, where people say, yes, but, you know, the whole Asian story could come undone because of, right? So I'll give you a few examples. One is China is slowing. Yes, it's priced into the model. China is decelerating, but even at 5% growth, it still adds a few hundred billion dollars a year of, uh, of you know, of, uh, of uh, sort of wealth uh, to the world economy. And the rest of Asia is growing very, very quickly. So China deceleration, of course, if China sneezes in some ways, you know, many countries in the region catch a cold. That's part of the, the downside of being overly hitched to China. But China is not their only trading partner. They're also trading a lot more with each other. So I don't think that China, uh, the China slowdown is sort of, you know, the end of the Asian sort of miracle by any stretch. Then there are the, the conflict scenarios, right? And uh, I've spent many years documenting the fault lines in Asia. There is at least, you know, I mean, every major war scenario in the world is in Asia, right? There's no question about it. 10 out of 10 World War III scenarios that we could conjure up and write a novel or make a movie about or, you know, even realistically prepare for. They're all in Asia, right? Make no doubt about it. I document them, you know, and I, I, I think through each and every one of those scenarios. Like India, China, Taiwan, South China Sea, China, Japan, North Korea, you name it. Like I said, they're all in Asia, Iran, India, Pakistan, right? All of these disputes. However, let's remember that it's been 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, 30 years of Asians integrating their economies and, and building these diplomatic institutions, 30 years of them managing these tensions, not having them blow up, and learning how to make sure that they don't reach the point or cross the point of no return. So you can't just have a scenario, an outlier that says, oh, yes, but there's going to be war in the Korean Peninsula. The whole Asian story is over. That's nonsense, right? You know, you could have war with North Korea. It doesn't invalidate the bigger picture. In fact, it's only going to accelerate the inevitable, which is that North Korea collapses, the peninsula reunifies, and you have uh, you know, the rehabilitation of this completely backwards, frozen, failed state, and that actually contributes in the long run towards the Asian story. So war is not something that is um, you know, exogenous. You know, it, it's part of the system. But when you have war, you also have the end of that war. You have the resolution of that war, the settlement of that war, and then you move on. And that moving on part is certainly going to happen. It's happening uh, with every either conflict or peaceful settlement of a dispute. Um, and, and North Korea seems to be going in that latter direction. And the third thing, though, that I want to mention, which is obviously important, is the environment. Uh, you know, uh, five billion people of Asia are as or more exposed to climate risk and volatility than uh, as much as any other part of the world. You not only have the, uh, the, the, the volcanic activity and the tsunamis, now you have rising sea levels. And of course, you know, uh, a huge part of the Asian population lives in coastal megacities. They're the most at-risk people in the world from uh, rising uh, sea levels. Then you've got uh, flooding. Uh, you even got drought in some areas. You've got melting glaciers in the Himalayas and the impact that's going to have. So there's a huge laundry list of environmental challenges in Asia. But much like as it's a microcosm of the world, you don't have one collective Asian solution to all Asian environmental problems, right? You have a very haphazard uh, kind of approach, and it's mostly country by country or bilaterally. Um, you know, and so I can't give a generic answer as to how Asia manages the environmental uh, problem. You know, but that said, if you take a country like China, you know, you can see the efforts, at least, that are being made to, to reduce emissions, so much in, uh, sort of investment in uh, alternative and renewable energy. They're still obviously building too many coal-fired power plants, uh, as is India. Uh, but as the cost of technology comes down, you can see the amount of capital being deployed to leverage these new technologies in Asia. And that's a pretty important story. 
What lessons can Asia still learn from the West? That's a great question. So, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm so glad that someone asked that. Was it you who did it? Raise your hand. Come on. Uh, so, no, it's a brilliant question, and, and it allows me to clarify, you know, the single most important historical and philosophical and conceptual point in the book, which is that the rise of Asia does not mean the decline of the West, does not mean the decline of America, does not mean the decline of Europe, right? We live for the first time in a truly multipolar world. America is still a superpower by any measure. Europe is still uh, you know, highly influential globally in many ways. And not only do you have one Asian power, you have multiple Asian powers. So the world is truly multipolar. And part of the reason, a very important reason, why Asia got to the point it is today is because of what it learned from the 19th century of Europeanization and the 20th century of Americanization. Whether it's principles of the Enlightenment, whether it is the, um, you know, the inheritance of British colonialism and having a competent uh, civil service and administrative system, or whether it is the love of democracy, free enterprise, capitalism you know, that comes from America, Asians have learned those lessons. They've spent hundreds of years learning from us. That's a big part of how Asia has done it, right? Part of what I say in the book is how come we've ignored so many of those things that we've taught the world, right? It's almost ironic. You know, I use the example of Brexit, obviously. You know, Britain used to have the most competent civil service. It ran the most far-flung empire in the world. And uh, today, you know, in a couple of years ago, when it came time to decide whether or not to stay in the European Union, rather than listen to the civil service, they had this ludicrous referendum, right? Now, that would never happen in Singapore, a former British colony. There, they've improved the, ca- the, the caliber of the civil service. They have more PhDs, more data-driven analysis than ever before. They would never do anything remotely as stupid, right, uh, uh, as that, right? So, you know, they have learned so much from us, and now, you know, uh, they can continue to learn in many ways, you know, creativity, entrepreneurship. I would say, though, in answering that, as much as the obvious things are true, we massively, massively underestimate how innovative they already are. So let's not pretend that we're talking about a bunch of monolithic countries where kids are just sitting there doing rote learning and stuff. Asia's not like that anymore. You know, it's literally get real. You know, they, if you look at WeChat and these other, you know, Gojek, the app, they're better than our apps, right? They didn't invent a lot of these things, but they've innovated them, right? They've adapted them to their markets, they've tweaked them, and they've taken them in new directions that we could actually learn from. So as much as I could give the obvious answers about what they can still learn from us, uh, um, the more important part of the book is what can we learn from them? Because they are doing a lot of things right maybe 50 to 60% of the things they're doing right are things that we taught them how to do and we should still do. But let's start to learn the other 30, 40% of things that they figured out how to do and we can actually learn from. Looking at the leaders in Asia, who do you think is doing a good job? Uh, Countries or people? Leaders. Leaders. Um, So, no, that's that's a good question. Um, You know, there's a lot of, you know, this is just a continuation of the previous point. When when you when we ask, you know, what are they learning? It's not because they're not monolithic, because Asia is full of billions of poor people in poor countries. They they have a lot to learn still about how to maintain social stability, inclusive growth and all those kinds of things around social development. And they're learning a lot of it from each other. Right. Right. So the leaders, when you say, you know, for example, how do you become a better democracy? Well, you don't actually have to look across the Pacific Ocean anymore. You've got Japan, you've got South Korea, you've got Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand are all in the immediate geography of Asia, right? Again, some of those countries are full democracies today because of having been uh, been occupied uh, by, by the U.S. And, and, and sort of tutored, you know, by us. But be that as it may... You know, some of the world's foremost democracies are right there in Asia. The most technologically advanced or sophisticated, smart countries, you know, like like Japan, uh, like Singapore, are, of course, in Asia. Um, And so there's lots of learning going on there um, in that area. So I would say the answer is, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And generally speaking, whatever problem you're trying to solve, you know, how do you go green fast, you know? You can look at, uh, at, at, at parts of China uh, for that, and you can look at Japan with their technology. Um, if you want to look at how to build a good civil service, you know, I mentioned Singapore earlier. That's the place where everyone goes, and that, that's, that's who we teach. I moved there a few years ago. We've got plane loads of Indians, of Chinese, of Kazakhs, Russians, you know, everyone 
comes to Singapore to learn how to build a smart city, you know, how to get the trash collected, you know, how to how to have um, just good, competent public administration. Thousands of people every week learn how to do that in Singapore, and then they go back to their countries and they run their countries marginally better than they were running them the week before, right? So there are in every domain you can find the lessons uh, in Asia itself. You were quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying the future winners in Asia will be whoever best scales new technologies and business models. Tell us more about that, and what does it mean for all of us sitting here in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley? Great question. So, I mean, you know, it's an enormously diverse set of, uh, of markets, and of course, you know, and, and some of them are huge, uh, like uh, China, obviously, India, and so forth. And what is happening is that you do have this regulatory fragmentation, right? Each of them has their own kind of industrial policy. We're all familiar with China's, um, but now India is doing the same thing, even though it's a democracy, even though it's a more open capitalist, um, you know, market economy. Um, they are, for example, you may have caught this in the news, um, they're requiring that Amazon not sell um, the products of any uh, companies or suppliers in which it is also an owner, because those would be privileged in the Amazon uh, platform. So they have to, you know, de- decouple things. So they're going to, you know, play with the regulations so as to benefit their local producers um, in the online marketplaces, whether it's the ones that they own or the ones that are foreign owned. So to navigate that is obviously uh, difficult. But let's bear in mind this being uh, California, Silicon Valley. The tech sector has been way ahead of the curve of the rest of the Western corporate multinational landscape in appreciating the diversity of Asia. Why? Because, of course, a lot of you were never in China. You weren't allowed, right? You can't do Google and Facebook in China. So the offices of Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and so forth have been huge in uh, offshore in Hong Kong, huge in Singapore, growing. I mean, they have to add new buildings and move thousands of people every other year because they underestimate how fast they're going to grow. Double-digit, triple-digit growth in, um, in B2B uh, ads and all of these other areas. E-commerce is growing so fast around the region. And, of course, now in India as well. So, you know, in terms of diversifying the tech corporate footprint uh, out of China into the rest of Asia, these fast-growing markets... Tech is the leader in doing that. It's the rest of corporate America that needs to learn from what the tech sector has had no choice but to do because of the China problem. So the combination of diversification across Asian markets, but also that adaptation factor, you know, sort of understanding what local needs are, what their price points are, that's been critical. Look at how Apple, you know, has been considered this luxury, you know, product and doing well enough in China, which is to say having 2%, you know, market share, uh, was considered good enough to make it a trillion dollar company and everything was fine. Up until a month ago, when they suddenly reported, you know, declining earnings in China. In any case, the handset market has stalled in China because everyone's got one or two phones already. Um, and they didn't want to ever reduce their prices and so forth. So suddenly, on the back of that, you know, disappointing uh, revenue um, report from January, not only, you know, their market cap took a huge uh, uh, haircut, and then just a few days later, and I think the news did, didn't get talked about much because we were all focused on the negative earnings in China. They announced that they were going to finally start to do the final assembly uh, of iPhones, latest models, in India. Right? And that was a big dispute with the Indian government for a couple of years. Um, where, and then Apple finally had to cave and say, how are we going to generate growth outside of China in order to buttress our credibility as a global uh, company and, and capitalizing these other Asian markets, we're going to have to comply with India's requirements that we, that we make in India uh, as well. So you'll see more and more that in order to sell in these big Asian countries, you have to be there, you have to manufacture there, do joint ventures there. Uh, the simple answer is go do it, right? Because they're not going to relent on their regulations. So following up on that, in your Asianomics chapter, which I very much enjoyed, you talked about technology, venture capital, and you wrote that Western economists have said that Asia's rise is catching up with the West when, in fact, Asia may be leapfrogging it. To this audience, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Now, obviously, you know, leapfrogging is meant in a very specific way. It's certainly not meant to say, although, as I showed, showed you earlier, Asia is, in PPP terms, better than 40% of world GDP, 
As I also said, you have more poor people in Asia than the entire rest of the world put together. So when I say leapfrogging, I mean that um, you know, this, this phrase that you're familiar with, the advantages of late development or second mover advantage, uh, that's, that's, that's happening. You know? And we traditionally use that when it comes to uh, microfinance or adoption of mobile phone technology. But now when you look at you know, fintech, and mobile payments, um, or areas like off-grid power, you know, sustainable energy. Um, as I said, the price of these technologies has come way down. A lot of these very poor societies are, you know, are able to to implement uh, and move to the highest standard very, very quickly. You're seeing this in telemedicine, you know, mobile, uh, you know, delivered healthcare. When Asian countries want to have um, Oh, by the way, I should also mention, you know, digital identification, like what India is doing with the Aadhaar system, right? You know, we don't even have that here. Um, we're still, we still can't agree on whether or not a driver's license from one state <laughs> constitutes that federal or, you know, the ID requirement that they want at the airport. You know, the, literally, we have that conversation here. It would be ludicrous to have that conversation in a number of uh, Asian countries. So, um, you know, there is, so those are some of the areas of leapfrogging. But, but healthcare is so interesting because, you, you know, we talk about the fact that Asians or Asian countries are going so old, but they're not rich. And so how will they ever have welfare states? You're going to have mass revolt and upheaval uh, because they can't provide that standard of health care that our national health care systems provide. We're obviously referring to Europe here, not to America. Um, um, but, but here's the thing, right? You know, the, the costs have come down. The models are entirely different because of this leapfrogging, because you can have this telemedicine and so forth. Companies like Health Cube in India is one to, to look at in this regard. So a country that's as poor as Indonesia is actually talking about legislating a national health care, you know, sort of, sort of uh, availability for its population within the next couple of years. It's not because they're going to do it at $15,000 per capita per year, right? They're going to do it at like $500, right, per capita uh, per year. And that's part of the leapfrogging as well. The U.S.-China relationship, it's a really heated topic, but we especially hear it, uh, feel it here in the Bay Area in the technology space. You wrote that China is using its technology not to conquer its neighbors, but to finance their success. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, this is, this is very, very important because, again, it turns on its head our conventional wisdom, just like Belt and Road, where our primary assumption, again, inflected through a, a very reactionary conservative media that, that isn't on the ground, is that, well, China's got this Belt and Road thing, it's going to fail. I mean, the Council on Foreign Relations literally last week had a, a whole session, a whole meeting titled The Backlash Against Belt and Road. It's not about, like I said, Rand Corporation, Citigroup. The people who actually know what they're talking about know that Belt and Road is totally happening and mostly succeeding. And on the margins, there's backlash and there's corrections that will actually make it better. That's what you should correctly understand when it comes to Belt and Road. But our tone is like, it's totally going to fail, which is ridiculous, right? Because as I said, it's been actually been going on for 30 years. So tell me how it's going to fail, right? It's going to be going on for a thousand more years. Um, so similarly, when it comes to tech, right? Same thing. It's like China is out to conquer the world through its AI, right? You know, Baidu and Tencent are buying up companies everywhere, forcing them to use their technology, harvesting their data, exporting social credit, uh, social credit system and mass surveillance. And, you know, China tech equals uh, export of authoritarianism. That's more or less how we view it. And as you, you know, from the quote you gave, I'm kind of, I'm not painting the exact opposite picture, but let's bear in mind that Chinese capital, right, whether it is, and I don't just mean China, by the way, I mean this broader Asian capital structure because SoftBank, right, which is Japanese, um, and it actually fits this model I was talking about earlier where the rich countries in Asia help to develop, help to stimulate the growth of the lesser developments. You know, who is the earliest big investor in Alibaba? SoftBank, right? And still one of its largest shareholders, right? So Japan investing in China, Chinese capital, Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, and so forth, investing in lending and in capitalizing Southeast Asian tech companies the way a Tencent did with Garena, which is C Group. C Group is the largest internet company in Southeast Asia, the first one to list in the New York Stock Exchange, as it did last year, a five, six billion dollar uh, tech company. They're not giving their data to Tencent. Right? They're, that's not what they're doing. They could get money from anywhere. 
they're, they're benefiting from the technological innovations that China has actually pioneered in the digital space. They're applying there to their markets, and they're not sharing or exporting or giving away their data to anyone, right? So one has to look much more holistically, right? The whole ride-sharing industry in the region has been capitalized to a large degree, again, by SoftBank, by Chinese. The whole e-commerce landscape, too. You don't hear the sort of backlash in that area at all. They're so grateful for rich Asia financing their companies because they don't have that massive liquidity in the venture capital, private equity sort of uh, uh, space. And uh, again, they're, they're keeping their data. You've advised everyone from governments of a very, very long list of countries. Uh, General McChrystal, Nicholas Negroponte of MIT, U.S. Special Operations Force, and even Bono. What advice can you give to us? You have a lot of community leaders in this audience right now with regards to Asia. And we're tech central in the Bay Area. Arguably, technology is going to define the new normal. So we need to be on this. What's your advice to us? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we are, I think this is, Part of the beauty of our federal, you know, devolved, decentralized democracy is that California clearly, you know, can try as much as possible to have its own foreign policy. You know, it's uh, it's climate policy, uh, you know, it's uh, and, and uh, you know, obviously uh, contradict the administration on immigration and these kinds of things. And now, obviously, trade is going to have to be one of these areas because it is like, especially if I were California, if I were in tech, I'd feel like my limbs were being chopped off by Washington uh, because it's... It's inhibiting my access to uh, to Asian economies as a result. So, therefore, and I hinted at this earlier. You know, when you have a situation where we have not joined a trade agreement and others have, and they are now already manifestly, measurably in just the last couple of quarters, we've been able to measure how much benefit Canadian companies and Japanese companies have have have, have gained from being part of TPP, and we have not gained. Right, I'd be pulling my hair out if I were in your in your shoes. Um, so the only way to compete is to sort of go over there, be there uh, locally, incorporate do these kind of joint ventures in order to um, sort of, you know, get your technology beyond the tariff uh, window, so to speak, and and inside those economies and societies. And that's what I see Silicon Valley venture capital doing, right? For the first time, you've got major Silicon Valley uh, VC funds that are making direct investments into Asian uh, tech uh, startups. You, know, you see it happening in Indonesia, for example, uh, and it'll, it'll start to pick up, I'm sure, in Vietnam and the Philippines and elsewhere. So literally go directly there and don't wait for Washington to get its act together because it's not likely to. <laughs> we, have, we have just about a minute left, and I'm going to close by sharing a message for you from Kishore Mabubani, who you thanked in your book. Uh, he's come out to speak here in San Francisco. He said, I'm deeply touched that Parag referred to my first book, Can Asians Think, at the very beginning of his new book. He's right. That provocative volume started a new phase of thinking about Asia. Quite remarkably, after 20 years, it's still in print. Indeed, it sits on the bestseller list at Changi Airport in Singapore. I wish Parag great success with his new book. Our thanks to Dr. Parag Khanna, managing partner at FutureMap, former fellow at Brookings Institution and New America, and author of the new book, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. We also thank everyone here, as well as our audience on radio, television, and the internet. This program has been held in association with Asia Society Northern California, the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, the McKinsey Global Institute, and Thai Silicon Valley. We also want to remind everyone here that copies of Dr. Hanna's book will be here on sale, and he'll be pleased to sign them in outside this room following the program. I'm Margaret Conley of Asia Society Northern California, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you.